This podcast is one I was very excited to tee up. Mike McCormick runs the Breck Epic, a week-long mountain bike stage race in Breckenridge, Colorado. I raced it in 2010 during its sophomore year, and it's only gotten better since, drawing a surprisingly passionate and international crowd. While he continues to innovate on that event, he's also launched a massive consumer festival and a PR agency, and continues his local trail advocacy efforts. This is my longest episode yet, but Mike is supremely entertaining, far too humble, and has some incredible advice for anyone starting an event. It doesn't matter if that's a sporting event, business seminar, or whatever. The lessons here are solid. The podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. All right, Mike, I first became aware of you and I probably met you at the 2010 Breck Epic, which was the second year of that event. And I raced in it. You invited some media out. And um, the Breck Epic is a multi-day, about a week-long mountain bike stage race in Breckenridge, Colorado. But that wasn't your first event. Uh, you mentioned that the Firecracker 50, which is a, I'm presuming, a 50-mile mountain bike race in Colorado, was the first event that you were involved with, right? Uh, pretty close. Yeah, it was an event that, that sort of sprang from a local series that uh, my then business partner and I were managing and overseeing. We owned it at the time called the Summit Mountain Challenge. And we lived in Breckenridge. And, and through our experience with the Summit Mountain Challenge, which is basically Wednesday night worlds, uh, it sort of dawned on us that people were looking for something bigger and, and farther flung and, and a little bit more experiential. We sort of sense that that's the way that the the wind was blowing on the mountain bike side, uh, that the standard World Cup format, which is loosely describes what we were doing on Wednesday nights, although it was, you know, a bunch of kids and, and hippies in jean shorts. And, <laughs> um, it was just uh, people wanted more from the experience. So we, we sort of started, we talked about it for months and months and months. And we first started calling it the Firecracker 40. And everyone we talked to was like, 40 miles? That is too long. <laughs> and uh, like, look where we are today, right? right. Um, and so we eventually, we, 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 uh, with the help of Mike Zobi, who designed a lot of the courses, all the Breck Epic courses, and he's a, a long-time uh, cycling advocate, came up with a 25-mile lap that we really liked. Uh, and sort of luck pushed us into offering a team component and a solo division uh, and, and, you know, we were off and running. I think we had a hundred people in the first year and, and right now it's a, uh, one of the best races on the planet. I haven't been involved for a long time, but I'm, I'm, I love it. I think it's an awesome race property. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. You think about it back in 2000 is still when 24 hour racing was big and people were, 
you know, if you're going to put the time and energy into going to an event and the expense and giving up your weekend, why would you want to race for an hour when you could race for, you know, four or five hours or the whole weekend and really make the most of it, right? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. 24-hour racing was, was really in vogue back then, and, and but the barrier to participation was so high. I mean, unless you were a solo rider, um, which is insane, um, you had to get four or five friends together. Uh, you know, if you live in Colorado, you had to drive to Moab, um, and there weren't that many of them. And you know, the prospect of, of drilling yourself overnight I think people wanted something that was more approachable and yet provided uh, those elements of, man, I have done something today. I have, I have just pinned it. Um, and, so, and so those shorter distances emerged, and, and I think that, that, that you saw what happened with 24-hour racing, and, and those mid- to long-distance events have become very, very popular. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of like extreme within reach. <laughs> for the for the average fit rider, you know, most people that ride a lot can tackle a fifty mile race. So it was, I see the appeal for sure. The um, but so before that, how did you get into event race event management? What were you doing before that, and what's your educational background? Um, basically, uh, making a lot of of. Uh, post-secondary educators frustrated <laughs> with my lack of lack of attention and follow-through um working my way through the bike industry um kind of uh, self-victimized by the, the peter principle you know, sort of promoted early on uh, beyond my capability to understand uh, the mechanics of a larger corporate culture uh, what do you mean by that uh, i ended up as, as the marketing guy for bontrager and klein uh, for a couple years, maybe a little bit longer than that, um, and, and moved from an outside sales rep position with Trek, essentially, uh, with those brands, um, moving back to Madison and, and working in Waterloo as the brand manager, um, where I just sort of my immaturity at, at 25 ran into the buzzsaw of people who just weren't very tolerant of that, understandably. Um, and that was also a time of just, you know, incredible change and churn where small brands were being gobbled up and, and the bike industry was going through this amazing, from some respects, metamorphosis. Um, and I sort of got puked out the back end by Trek, um, and justifiably so. Um, I was doing a, a shit job and had a huge attitude and it ended up being a really formative experience. You know, it forced me to reassess um, who I was and what I wanted and how I was acting. And um, you know, it was it was uh, deeply painful at the time that you, to be told you're not good enough. And um, I mean, you have a choice. I, I think when you're faced with those things, you can you can huddle. Um, and, and go down the path that's been chosen for you and, and aim lower. Um, or you can regroup and reassess and, and come back out swinging, you know, but, but be prepared to be accountable for sort of your shortcomings, which is what happened to me. Um, I ended up moving to Colorado in 1999. Um, you know, cyclocross had been sort of a passion of mine and I was lucky enough to meet Lyle Fulkerson who owned the super cup series. And uh, I did some 
freelance marketing work for him, traveled around the country to you know what was really one of the, the seminal event experiences of our lifetime in the United States. Um, I, I don't know if the Super Cup atmosphere has ever been recreated to that level. Um, so I ended up in, in Breckenridge. Um, did some freelance copywriting and marketing you know, from you know, a little postage stamp sized desk uh, in the condo that I was renting. And um, had the good luck to eventually meet Jeff Westcott, who was my business partner for a long time in Maverick Sports. And he was taking over the local race series. And we ended up doing that together. We were very much yin and yang. Um, and we, we brought different capabilities to the table. Um, and that morphed into sort of the event trajectory and the PR path uh, that have sub- subsequently become life. Um, and it's been you know, being told you suck at your job, um, weirdly ended up being the best thing that ever happened to me. It didn't seem like it at the time, but looking back on it, I've been very fortunate and and I could sort of trace it back to that fairly negative experience. I'm curious because yeah, for the events that you run that you've got to sell sponsorships to them or they just wouldn't exist. So what was it that you sucked at? Cause it couldn't have been sales. Um, you know, um, that's, that's, that's a multifaceted answer. Um, Lau Fulkerson was like P.T. Barnum. Uh, he, he just had these great observations about events. And one of them was uh, events are either registration-based or sponsorship-based. And, and his take was, we're a sponsorship-based series. And then when the Super Cup died, you know, my observation was, you should really look at registration-based events. Uh, they're a safer footing. And I ended up being a partner with Jeff, who's, who's a very Northeastern uh, mentality. You know, you don't borrow money. And that's how all of our events have been structured. We, we make the budgets work based on registration revenue. And sponsorship revenue is icing on the cake. You know, I, I can make an extra mortgage payment if I can sign someone. And we're in a transition there too, as, as our events have matured, all of a sudden they have you know, global and, and national stature and we've been forced to reassess their, their true value. It's, it's been a point of pride you know, not to charge people much, if anything, to align with us. Um, and you know, we, we sort of reluctantly being dragged into a scenario where we need to um, Edge a little closer to market value for what we offer. The bike industry is small, and and you just you're going to see the same people ten years from now. So you want to have them look back on a relationship with you and feel like they got good value. They were they were treated with integrity, and that they were the best money you've ever spent. I mean, Santa Cruz has been a partner of the Epic for nine years now, um, and every year, you know, I make the phone call. Hey guys, you know, we're, we're kind of re-upping contracts and I expect them to say no. <laughs> and they're so amazingly awesome. Uh, they, uh, like they jump back in with enthusiasm and, and always say, you know, we love the event. You're doing a great job. And, and that's meaningful. Um, you know, we launched that race when the economy was tanking and the entire bike industry kind of Heisman us and said, we still don't have any money. And we had to, we had to say, Hey, we're not asking for money. We understand that it's tough times, but you still need to, to market yourselves. We're going to offer you a chance to, you know, send us 12 helmets and you are the official helmet partner. And that number has clearly grown since then. But, um, we made it easy for people to say yes. And I think we helped at a time when help was needed. 
And, you know, what were we not good at and why did we get fired? You know, the Royal we, um, we weren't good at playing nice in the sandbox with other people. And, you know, I grew up in a, a small community where I, I was in a lot of ways, um, maybe not the most mature kid, but, but probably one of the smarter ones. And I just developed an arrogance that, you know, wasn't a good look for a 25 year old. So I, I couldn't figure out how to make my vision for Bontrager and Klein work in that environment. And, and the fault wasn't with Trek. The fault was with me. Uh, I didn't know how to build consensus and be decent to people and sit back and <laughs> it's happening right now. Talk, 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 me, 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 me. I didn't know how to sit back and listen and, and really think about things um, and other people's perspectives. And uh, I'm better at that now. Yeah. I sucked at it then. It was awful. <laughs> well, I think everybody when they're young, when they're young is like that. I mean, I love my kids, but I can see it in my son. You know, he's, he is right. And it's his way or the highway. And he gets so frustrated when it doesn't go that way. And I was that way. I, you know, we probably all were to some extent, but, um, that's a very gracious observation. <laughs> Wait, so, so I should have been beating myself up for 20 seconds. Well, the important thing is you learned, right, Mike? That's what my mom would say. Yep. <laughs> so the, I want to talk about when you're talking about the sponsorships and, and the, the value proposition to your sponsors, were you talking about the Breck at that point or still the firecracker? Um, you know, I stepped away from bike events for a while. I went to work, uh, my, my partnership with Jeff dissolved in, in 2005 or 2006. And it's, it's when I sort of transitioned from being, uh, the events manager at Breckenridge ski resort. So it was you know, like big snow events and moved over to be one of the senior marketing people at Beaver Creek ski resort. Um, and so I was, I was living and working, you know, almost an hour away and it just didn't make sense for me to be involved. So at Beaver Creek, I, I, there seems to be a pattern emerging here, but I swear it's it's just a circumstance. Um, at Beaver Creek, I worked for someone who I absolutely loathed. Um, I, I, they were just icky. They they were they were greasy and and there was no integrity. And I was coming from uh, working for someone at Breckenridge Ski Resort who I loved. I, I was challenged. I was I was growing as as a manager and as a person, and I was starting to become aware of the things that I really didn't do so well at Trek, and I just relished uh, coming up um, with her as a mentor. Um, and so I went to Beaver Creek, thinking, okay, this is the next step, and I'm going to learn, you know, a lot more about my craft. And as it turns out, the guy that I worked for was just a poop. Um, and I'd never been in, in that situation before, right? I had no, like I didn't enjoy working for some of the people at Trek, but I sure respected them. Um, and, and I was in a situation where uh, I hated this guy and I was unhappy. And at that point, Chris Conroy from Yeti came along and said, hey, we are, um, we're buying the Mountain States Cup from its, its current owner. And the Mountain States Cup was sort of this sprawling regional series with, downhill and four cross and cross country and short track. Um, and he's like, would you be interested in, in running it for us? Um, and I, I literally jumped 
you know, like like uh, the last guy off the Titanic at the life preserver that Chris Conroy and Steve Hugendorn threw my way. Um, and I did that for about three years, and, and the economy tanked, and, and the business model changed, and travel became harder for people. And I, once again, was faced with the fact that I'm not a very good organizer, and, and my sort of embedded ADD was killing me and killing them. And I liked working for Yeti, uh, but I was also, um, you know, my family was growing. We just had our first kid and, and the second one was on the way. Um, and eventually that came to an end. I, I needed to step away. The hours were brutal. Um, the timing was messed up, which just was giving everyone ulcers, uh, me most of all. What do you mean, uh, the timing? Yeah, we changed timing providers in the first year that we took over. Oh, actually, and event timing. Event timing, yes. Okay. And it was catastrophic. Uh, it just did not go well. And um, everyone suffered. You know, everyone, I think, I'm sure everyone felt like they had a complaint box sitting right next to their phone, um, just <laughs> stuffed with ballots. <laughs> and, so, uh, and so we spent years digging out and uh you know i think also the, the the regional series where you had to book you know seven hotel rooms at seven different venues over the course of the season became onerous as as the economy tanked um and so i took a break i uh stopped doing anything um in 2008 when our second son was born and and he was born in respiratory distress, and and you know that was a really emotional time for our family. We didn't think he was going to make it. Um, the Yeti guys, after what was uh, you know sort of both of us walking away, grumbling a little bit, um, they were the first phone call um, when you know I was I was you know crying in a hospital, and uh, it it was Chris uh, and and who, and they were like, whatever you need, whatever you need. We, we have got your back. Do you need a place to stay? Do you need some money? And, uh, you know, they called. And Joe Lindsay called. And Mike Ferentino called. And, and, and just sort of the outpouring of people who I love uh, sort of got us through that point. And, you know, it's in sort of my bumbling way. Um, you know, the kernel of the Breck Epic had been planted in my mind by Mike Ferentino years and years ago, an article that he wrote um, about doing, I think it was the Trans Rockies, Trans Rockies, um, and rupturing <laughs> both of his Achilles um, in a pair of new CDs. Um, and uh, sorry, really, really long rambling explanation, but I just needed something to do. And I looked around and, and, saw that experiential racing was on the rise and, and again world cup style racing was in decline um and in my home community of breck where i learned about stewardship and and environmental responsibility um i saw a trail network that could that could birth something different and unique um you know six big loops you know the rides you wanted to do with your buddies once a year um and so that's just sort of how the Breck Epic was born. Right out, of bo out of boredom. <laughs> really. So the Breck Epic, so you'd been doing events for many, many years when the Breck Epic came to be. Uh, 
because I've run events as well, and I've, I've talked with Lance at Press Camp a little bit about how he manages his events. So from an event standpoint, what are some of the things you do to kind of, like when you're starting for the first time or you're starting over for the next year's event, you know, what are some of the first steps you do to get the event rolling along? Um, you know, you know how you sort of, uh, accrue life experience as you go along. I try. Uh, and you're my guy, right? If you're lucky, <laughs> some of it sticks. Um, I was lucky enough to be hired by a PR firm after the first year of the Epic. You know, we didn't have any money. So we sent out a series of, of irreverent, snarky newsletters. Which are fantastic. Um, I love which were fantastic, those. right? Like they don't come out so frequently anymore. Um, both because I don't have as much time and, and I'm, I'm really trying to push myself along uh, an arc towards maturity. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so one of my wife's friends, Ian Anderson, called me after the race and he said, you know, we, we like what you've done. Would you be interested in coming to work for us at Backbone Media and helping us grow um, our cycling portfolio? Um, and again, it was, it was just like this, this beam of sunshine that had, had you know, broken through the clouds. Um, the economy tanked, you know, the second after we wrote a $40,000 check for merchandise for the Breck Epic. And we were upside down. Um, and, you know, cash flowing money from year to year to, to pay last year's bills. Uh, and so I, I went to work for Backbone. And, you know, just like my experience at Beaver Creek, which was kind of poopy in one regard, but also really taught me about, you know, events aren't about putting on a cool show. At least that's not what they're only about. They're really about impacting local economies. Uh, F&B outlets, hotel rooms, you know, travel. Uh, so taking that piece from Beaver Creek uh, and then looking at, you know, I spent several years at Backbone uh, under Penn and Nate and Ian uh, and Craig. And it was it was an amazing experience. I mean, and first because they're, they're, they're wonderful people um, and they do strong ethical work and they're fun to hang out with. And um, I learned about PR and, and about talking to the media and, and how doing the right thing and the transparent thing and the honest thing is a really resonant quality. I mean, that's the recipe for good PR. Um, be honest with people. Tell them what you like about a product or thing um, and tell them what you think is cool and then let them sort of parse that with what they think is cool or not uh, and the talking points in the brochure. Um, and plant seeds and, and trust that people will say good things if you're fundamentally decent to them. So when you ask about what ingredients are in our events, I think you have to have a good concept, something that, that people like. I think you have to be well organized and, and that includes, you know, communicating well, um, taking care of people on site. Uh, you have to have, you know, for our events, media is a component of everything that we do. We want people like you uh, experiencing the event and enjoying it and talking about it. Um, cultivating media relationships benefits us on a number of fronts. And it helps that, you know, when I see you at a trade show, we're just as likely to whip out a scale and, and weigh something, you are at least, or um, like go grab a cup of coffee and talk about our kids. I love that. Uh, I have lucked into a job where I get to talk about 
stuff that's cool with people that I like. Uh, and so the, the event side of the business has sort of grown almost against our will as we've cultivated the PR side of our business. Um, and I think, you know, we talked about the ingredients for a successful event. For us, it's good concept, good communication, um, some traction with the media. And then, and then the fourth thing really, and this is a qualitative component, and there are two of them. Uh, number one, don't take yourself super seriously. It's just bike racing. You know, we don't need to send anyone to jail or federal court for borrowing their friend's entry um, because we have a shitty refund <laughs> uh, process or, or not at all. Uh, hint, hint. All right. uh, and, and the other thing is listen. You know, things aren't always going to go right. You can plan for a thousand things, and, and the reality is that there's ten thousand things. Yeah. Um, well, let's let's talk about some of the like logistics on site and stuff. So, because the you know the point of this for people listening is to be like, okay, let's say they want to do an event in a different space. It's like, well, what kind of lessons can I take away from this? So, a couple more specific questions for you are, you know, you mentioned the experience has got to be good, so. A, what do you do to curate an experience for the participants once they're there or even leading up to the event? Because you've got to build that anticipation to make them excited and pull their friends in and, you know, make a, a week of it with friends. But then also, you know, from the staff side and the volunteers and everybody that you have to organize to make this event successful, <clears throat> what what things do you have? Do you have a checklist? Do you have like a virtual or a digital document? Like what are some of the actual things you use, the tools you use to manage a multi-day event? Well, we use, um, we have a sprawling staffing document that accounts for everything. It, it accounts for medical, you know, the, the most remote of Marshall locations and what time someone needs to be there. Um, there's a permitting timeline in there. Um, there's a, you know, feed Chris Crawley at, at two thirty because he gets grumpy, <laughs> you know, keeping people, keeping staff fed, um, getting sack lunches for volunteers. Um, the, those are the sort of logistical underpinnings and, and they are best managed by someone other than me. Um, the, I think that's one of the keys for us is that I'm, I'm definitely a 10,000 foot guy um, who struggles with, with really like grinding out detail. Um, so I forced myself to sit down and grind out detail, you know, several years ago. And since then have, have really been lucky in, in hiring people who are, are also close friends who get it and who get me like, that's part of the blueprint. I, I, I don't want to manage certain things, but I am happy to pay someone well to manage them for me. Um, you just, uh, in my experience, I've, I've just had to assess what I'm good at, um, which is not much, um, and what I suck at, which is a much longer list. And what I've been really good at, if I could point to one thing, is just hiring people to do the stuff that I'm not that great at. Um, and then, you know, dicking around with newsletters. <laughs> and, uh, and, how, how do you find those people? Um, you know, I think that comes back to environment. It's more fun to mark a course for 20 miles a day than it is to sell insurance over the phone. So we live in a mountain community where there are lots of people who would love to be paid to ride their bike. And we've been fortunate enough like uh, on the course marking side to have like a group of 
six course markers, this will be their ninth year with us. They're amazing. Uh, and so you, you treat those people well. And they keep coming back because you're nice to them. And when they need money because they don't have insurance and they slice their finger off, they know that you're there for you. You're there for them. Um, and buying them you know, a case of beer and giving pizza in their hands. and um, It's not rocket science. Uh, and it's the same thing with an event. You know, you anticipate every question that a consumer may have and you find a way to organize that well and answer it on your website so that people are confident that you've thought of those things. And, and that translates into a really effective sales tactic. I mean, when you, when you project, hey, we know what we're doing. Um, I mean, the Breck Epic, you know, it's the cheapest stage race in the world, um, but it's not inexpensive. Uh, so you have to win those people over somehow and, and being a good sport about what they know and what they don't know and being willing to answer the same question with as much enthusiasm the 50th time you've heard it as the first time. And that's, there's so much qualitative, Tyler. You know, I wish there, there was a formula that I could point to, um, but I think it amounts to being humble, um, admitting where you suck at something, uh, being willing to make it right. Um, no matter what it takes. And and also you know, the, the flip side of that is when someone's an asshole to you, when you own your own business, you can just give them their money back and tell them to go away, which is awesome. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, but you're right that for, for everybody else that's not an asshole, it's, you know, you, you realize that they're the reason you're able to do what you do is because uh, they trust in your ex- ability to provide an experience that they want and they're willing to pay for it. So yeah, I like that, uh, you know, kind of answering all the questions and giving them the, the confidence that you know what you're doing ahead of time, whether it's, you know, through an FAQ or whatever on your website or hearing their friends talk about it. So once once the people show up to the race, what are some of the things that you have in place, the things that you do to keep the excitement level up when, you know, say it's day four and people are tired and hurting? <laughs> um. Well, you try to get through, in, in, in the case of the Breck Epic, you try to get through those nightly meetings fast. Um, and while keeping them entertaining isn't really a goal, they're more or less entertaining. You know, there's a goofball in a cowboy hat up front um, who's doing his best to answer their questions. Um, and, and when problems arise, as they always do, again, listen. And if you can't fix it, tell people, I can't fix it. I realize it sucks, but you know we're gonna we're all gonna have to, you know, put our big boy pants on, and this is what it's gonna look like tomorrow. And and you know, I'm sorry someone moved the course marker. That's happened once in a while. And, and yeah. shoot, there's some something's was, beyond our control. I was gonna ask you about that because there was one year I think when some of the the guys leading the race then they go off course either because it wasn't marked or or something happened. And- We've had a, a couple of weird instances, and it's really affected our labor model. Um, um, we had one year when you know, someone parked a van in front of a course arrow for a turn. <laughs> um, and, yeah. And then we had another year where we were going through an area that was heavily used by the motorized community and, and someone had chucked arrows off into the woods. And then we had another year where we, we always have problems with through hikers. Um, they just – they don't like mountain bikers. It really only takes one bad through hiker to really mess up a race. And we realized that, you know, seven or eight miles of arrows had been pulled and tossed in the woods. And, um, 
they had gone on to set up, set up some really sort of ghetto speed traps for people that could have hurt people. Um, and so over the course of the past several years, I mean, dating back nine years now, like we have pre-riders on every section of course and not just one, but, but you know, there'll be 10 pre-riders every morning and they go out with a full marking kit. They are, they know where they're going and they know where the course is going. So, uh, two years ago, we had to remark seven miles of trail um, in 45 minutes, and Jeez. our our marking team was on it. And 10 seconds after Anne St. Clair got the last arrow placed, um, I think Alvin Licata came screaming through. You know, the reigning world marathon champion. Right. <laughs> so by the skin of our teeth, uh, <laughs> we, we dodged a few bullets, but. Um, you know, we just know that there are those people out there. And the land managers are not happy about it. You know, they don't subscribe to that. The sheriff's office doesn't like it. Um, and so we have a lot of people on our side in the community, but we ultimately we're responsible for keeping riders on course. So we put a lot of labor on course the morning before each stage. Right. Yeah, it's amazing people do that when they, they just don't realize how much Revenue, I'm sure you bring to that community multiple times per year. It's it's insane. Yeah, think about how many times you like shake your fist at someone in traffic and and don't stop to think. You know, maybe they're having an awful day. Maybe they're they're lost in thought. I, I don't think we're predisposed as a race to, to really consider you know the complexities of things like that. So you give people a pass. There's just some dicks out there. That's life. That's got nothing to do with hikers. It's got nothing to do with dirt bikers. They're just people who get off by, you know, you know, upper deck in your toilet. It's <laughs> all you, all you can do is just be better prepared. Yeah. So Brack Epic started in 2009 and been running every year since. The um, I just wanted to call out one of the things you can talk about in a little detail if you want. But one of the things you've done to expand the appeal of that event was offering not just the full six or seven day version, but also a like a three or four day mini version within it for people who can't take a full week off of work. Uh, are there any other things you've done to that event to kind of increase the appeal beyond it's what you started with? Um, well, there's that. Um, we, we've sort of lived with the same categories. They're almost identical to what they were when we started. Um, we have sort of, uh, been poking fun of the UCI for a long time and claiming it to be, um, mountain bike stage race world championships. We did single speed mountain bike stage race world championships, which was a jab at, you know, the proliferation of acronyms, um, <laughs> we came out jerseys and it was rad. Um, and like single speeders got it, you know, they were in on the joke and then we have this amazing community of those guys. We launched those uh, three-day races just as a nod to so many people who said, you know, I can't come. Six is too much. You know, I don't feel up for six. Um, those, I mean, you've, you've ridden them, Tyler. They're, they're, those are not gimme miles. No. I mean, we, we poke fun at Leadville, too, because it seems like we're predisposed to making fun of people. Um, but we don't, though. we don't make fun of the competitors. We don't like their refund policy. We think they could do better, and we think that they should. Um, but the course and the athletes, hundred miles on a bike is no gimme. 
and our our courses are are shorter you know the 35 to 50 miles a day uh, but they're rugged you know it's really fun riding but it's mountain biking uh, so those three-day courses made a lot of sense for people. Uh, we've we've gotten along. Um, we really put a stake in the ground on on creating good swag items like our merchandise. I feel it is. I look at some of the event jerseys out there and T-shirts, and I'm just horrified. You know, I I, I want to pull certain event promoters aside and say, you know, you'd have a lot more fun just burning your money. Um, so it's it, it has. One of the things we've done, and we haven't done much that's had the impact that those three-day races have had, um, but we have aligned smartly. Um, we have SRAM, who's been an amazing supporter. We have Castelli on the clothing side, which says all the right things about the event and our commitment to high-mileage riders, uh, Santa Cruz. like Those are riders' bikes. Um, and so we have partners all up and down the the partnership chain who they're they're just they're good fits they they help enhance our credibility and hopefully we do the same for them so let's um, talk about those for a minute so i mean the castellis i'm assuming they provide the event uh kit because i know when i signed up we all everybody who entered got a jersey is that still the, what goes on uh everybody who signs up gets um <laughs> uh, I'll just tell you what we get instead of uh, making fun of someone else. Um, you get a jersey, a t-shirt, socks, uh, ticket to the final banquet. Um, you get uh, three aid bags this year, which we stage for you on course. I think that's the other thing that we do that really differentiates us. We take your crap out to the aid station for you in a a sequentially numbered and color-coded aid bag system, which is... I've still got mine. Amazing. <laughs> it is it just it takes the worry out of racing, you know? And, and it all goes back to the th- oh, the one thing we used to say about the firecracker with with 225 mile laps at an aid station every 7 miles. So you're going to hit 7 aid stations before you finish. Um you bring your bike, we're going to worry about everything else. And that's how you run a good event. Um and that goes back to like when I worked in in college at a restaurant where you had to wear a stripy shirt and five buttons. <laughs> you never let a customer ask to have their water refilled. You are there before they need it. And, um, you know, that's an amazing philosophy, anticipate people's needs. So we know that our, our customers are high mileage riders and they don't want a token promotional jersey. They want something that they can wear home with pride and that performs uh, from a technical standpoint. So Castelli was a great partner. You know, I can say the same thing about Santa Cruz, about SRAM. Uh, you know, this is one by country. Uh, so what does SRAM do? Do they bring their neutral support vans out to fix things? or They do, and they raise money for World Bicycle Relief at the same time. Um, the elimination of the front derailleur has really reduced their workload. Uh, but as you may or may not remember, um, uh, this course just eats wheels and, and light tire setups. Like you, you just can't run super skinny sidewalls here and expect to get through a stage, much less six of them. Um, so they come out. Uh, they talk about their mission on the altruistic side of things with World Bicycle Relief. Um, they bring sort of mechanic personalities. They bring top flight athletes. 
Um, and they provide meaningful support to everyone that's there. And one of the really cool things that they also do is they open their arms to anyone else, whether they're a competitor of theirs or not, to come and participate. Um, we ask them if they would mind if, if Mavic came on board as a sponsor a few years ago and they asked me a question. It got quiet for a second. And they said, does that make the race better for the riders? And I was like, you know, they bring, uh, they bring pedals and shoes and, and those things can get destroyed. And so, yeah, it makes the race better. And they're like, yeah, well, why is that even a question? You know, invite them in. And I was thinking, oh, there's this big wheel conflict. And there wasn't. You know, they're just really, really good people. They feel the same way about Shimano. Um, we've been amazingly fortunate to have them. And and they, they get it. They just get it on the human level. They get it on the rider level. So do you seek that when you're looking for event support like that? Because it's, it's more than a sponsorship in that case. You know, they're bringing... I, I presumably some dollars, but I guess even more importantly, really, is they're helping you guys put on a quality event by helping the riders. Do you, how much of that with the different sponsors you have, do you go out and say, hey guys, I, you know, we could use someone like you, or do they come to you and say, hey, this is what we were thinking? Um, a bit of both. A bit of both. We, uh, we have our key sponsors and our key categories in the bike industry. So we have components, we have helmets, we have bikes, we have socks, we have grips, we have saddles. Um, and sort of the, the, the bar that needs to, 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 to be passed at every one of those categories is, do you make the race better for the riders? Do you do that with product support, with on-site support? Um, and that's sort of better our clearinghouse issue. You know, does your inclusion in this race help the racer and in every case you look at everyone up and down the food chain goo is a great example um they man they fire the rocktane cannon <laughs> you know last year last year it was waffles and and like people were blown away when they had waffles at an aid station um so we tried to really enhance the on-course experience and ask that our partners do the same um and it's an investment for everyone. They have to get people there. They have to get rigs there. They have to get product there. Um, and that's where we ask that they put their money. We're, we're not asking bike people for money. And, you know, that's our, our stake in the ground. Right. We, we figure out a way to make in-kind partnerships work. Um, and I, I, I think I get a sense that they're grateful for it and that it's a great exchange of value. Um, and when the riders know that they've got, you know, Double D and Brad and Scott, yeah, they just well, those guys bring entertainment value in and of themselves. <laughs> right, exactly. There's always salsa. <laughs> yeah. The uh, all right. So I got two questions. And um, from the sponsorship standpoint, early on, did you have trouble attracting these brands to the event before it was proven? And then um, I forgot the second question. So answer that first. <laughs> Um, I was fortunate in that I had put together a few teams while I was at Trek and, and had the good luck to, to know, um, a handful of people who were willing to, to sort of take it on faith that we would do something good. And I was also coming off three or four years with Yeti where we got to do some good event work and we also got to do some good altruistic work. I think I was becoming a known quantity at that time 
Um, and the, uh, people were willing to take a flyer. And it also helped that we just didn't ask for that much. Right. Okay. So from uh, on that note, then that reminds me that the not asking for much part, it's goes back to what you're saying about being a sponsor driven event versus a registration driven one. Is it hard to scale an event when it's registration driven? Um, you know, this is the path we've chosen. So I don't have a lot of experience running an event that is sponsorship driven. We are doing a little bit more than dipping our toes in that water, in those waters right now. I mean, we're, we're talking to some big auto dealerships um, to support our whole portfolio, um, which would be a huge step for us. You know, I also look at, at sponsorship relationships between the local rec district here in Eagle, and I sit on that board and what they do for their partners and, you know, the lacrosse club locally that, that my sons play on, the hockey club. Um, and marketing is still pretty provincial in a lot of ways. There are people who are performing at a marketing level that, that just boggles my mind. I can barely comprehend what they're doing and why they're doing it and and – it's just brilliant. Like we're 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 seeing, uh, we're seeing public favor being swatted about by the media right now. And you know, while that's agonizing to watch, it's also this brightly burning dumpster fire that's fascinating. It's it's an, uh, just an example of how people can be influenced, mm-hmm. um, and that's marketing. It, it all boils down to, to marketing, communications, PR. Um, I think I've lost the thread of your question, which happens a lot. I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, it was the, the original question, of course, I have plenty more. It was for an event like the Breck where um, it's registration driven. Do, yeah, do you right. think using that revenue model limits your ability to grow that? Yes, absolutely. Um, you look at uh, the Pro Cycling Challenge, which was, was this beautiful Roman candle of an event, you know. It was, it like it wasn't very long lived. But as a fan of cycling, I loved it. Like I look at what they did, and how they activated on the ground, and the spectacle that they produced. And I, as a producer and someone who pays attention to how the zip ties are clipped, um, I loved it. And so we're moving in that direction uh, of trying to sort of create a hybrid where we have a little bit more patronage income coming in. Um, because I also think that we're at the level where we deserve it. Um, I think the Pro Cycling Challenge set the bar very high, and and we're trying to sort of occupy some of the space that was vacated uh, when when that that event achieved terminal velocity. Um, what were they doing that you admired so much? It was you know, despite the name changes up front, it was well branded. It really tapped into our community and culture's need. To have something owned and operated domestically that was big and and reached for the stars and and provided or at least promised really good narrative you know drama that you could watch from home and, and we're all we've, we've all watched the grand tours and and you know lance's impact on cycling not kamasaska but armstrong you know, can never be overstated you know the drama and the interest and 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 just the sheer dollars. I mean, Trek didn't get rich off Lance. Everyone got rich off Lance. Um, he, he, his accomplishments, 
no matter what you say about them, reshaped how we think about cycling. And it told us that there were narratives at play and there was drama. And that's something that the Pro Cycling Challenge did really well. Um, they created a beautifully branded package. It was well organized. The permitting that they had to go through in their business model is unbelievably onerous. Uh, so what we're trying to do, and then this is maybe a segue into the Race of Thrones promotion and how we have so much top talent coming here this year, is mountain biking doesn't really have that. It's it's a terrible spectator sport. Just awful. Um, well, it's it's it, tough, right? I mean, people are hidden in the woods for ninety percent of the lap. Right, and and the UCI's answer to that is to create a four mile spectator friendly lap that you can see what they're trying to do, and, and it is the answer. It's just so far afield from the mountain bike experience that 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 I know and love. Yeah, um, it is fun one, to watch though. You, I mean, absolutely, you got to give it to them. But yeah, that's that's a spectator thing. From a participant standpoint, <laughs> yeah, like that's not what you and I want to go ride every day. Right. It's like the joke about about you know sitting on your couch with a, with a, a jar of Pringles, watching an Olympic Olympic gymnast you know <laughs> take a step after you know a triple Lindy, and and just under your breath calling him a loser. <laughs> you know, it's you can you can bash on Eliminator or the, or the four mile format all you want, but you're sitting there on your couch, fascinated for an hour before you walk away, going, "You see, it sucks." Um, so you have to again, you know, dig a little deeper and acknowledge the complexities of most situations. So where the epic is concerned, we don't have drama. We have pro XCTs. We have some marathon racing. Event coverage is sporadic at best, and when you do see good coverage, it's coming from someone who takes the time to write an immersive race report that talks not just about the action at the pointy end, but what really happened. And so we created this thing where we're, we're giving entries to people who we consider influential in terms of talent or reach or, or in best case scenario, both. And we're luring them to Breck, and, and it's been successful. You know, the, the fastest... 25 human beings on, on mountain bikes, and there's also some roadies and, and cyclocrossers tossed in there, are coming to Breck. And they're going to kick each other in the nads for a week straight. We've never had that before. And following them are, are people like you from the fourth estate. You know, the, the journalists are coming because the names are coming. And we're going to have amazing coverage of the pointy end of the race. And I am so flipping stoked about that as a fan. And that's one of the things that the Pro Cycling Challenge did well um, that we thought we could do better. I mean, that's how the epic started. We thought we could do something better that didn't exist before. Yeah. And, and it doesn't sound too modest to say that. Um, but I'm excited about seeing real racing and communicating that to people all over the world. You know, Kabush is off the front and Wells is drilling it, chasing him down. Or Compton's doing the same to Nash. You know, that's... These are names that are heroes. And we also, I think it's one of the things mountain biking does really well. Our heroes are pretty accessible. Um, maybe not so much at Sea Otter where certain brands keep them behind velvet ropes. Um, but the Epic is a place where you can go talk to Todd Wells. You know what? Todd Wells is really funny. <laughs> you know, he's a really, really hilarious and kind and decent human being. I'll say the same thing about Russell Finsterwald. You know, Katie Compton is delightful. And not enough people know that about these people. 
So how does how do you convey what well, couple of questions? How do you convey that ongoing excitement? Like in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, the way you just described Todd Wells chasing down or being chased down or something like that. You know, I'm, I'm imagining this announcer on a podium somewhere calling live action out to keep people stoked on it, but that's really hard to do when people are 25 miles out into the woods away from the starting point. So how do you, how do you capture that excitement and use it? And then how does that translate into, you know, success for you in the event? Cue Mike McCormick twirling his mustache. (laughs) Um, At the Epic last year, um, Double D, Doug Dalton pulled me aside and said, have you seen this? You know, Wells is racing with one. And he pulls out this little head unit. It's, it's about the size of a garment. It's called the Collector. And it's made by made by Quark. Yep. And he brings it inside to, to my little, you know, race operations bunker. And he's like, bring up this webpage. And I look at it. And Finch DeWald's got one on. Um, I think Decker had one. Uh Wells had one, and you could see the dots moving on a map on your screen, and it would refresh constantly. So we're requiring that all of the Race of Thrones winners carry a collector with them so that they can be tracked in real time. We will take other select athletes from the field and and request that they carry one as well. Um, Quark is working on a solution to allow a great number more of, of attendees to be able to carry one. Um, so a, a rental or a checkout system. So anyone in the world can log into the website that's dedicated to, to tracking and see what's going on up front. The other side of that is that we have a couple of people coming who um, are race nerds of the highest order. Um, and I mean that as a compliment. Um, Logan Von Bokel, who's one of our senior PR people, um, you know, he, he worked for Velo News for a long time, and he is a race junkie. He knows everything. He's capturing images, um, sort of parsing them from the photographers that we have on site. He's conducting interviews after each day's stage, um, really just sort of trying to flood the airwaves with not just data from the collector units, but glimpses into what happened out there. You know, let's give Wells, you know, five minutes of interview time and let people know how goofy and sweet and Oh my God! Loaded for bear talented that guy is. Right. Um, so is there a, a is there a, a business model aspect to this? Because it, it's like from an entertainment standpoint, it's fantastic, and you're going to have people all over the world, presumably, more aware of your event. But does that like what are you hoping to gain from doing that? Because it's also a lot of work and probably a good bit of cost involved in implementing that and executing on it. We have a. Uh... We've sort of mapped out um, some some business planning to this. I think you know, we're, as the race grows in stature, and it's already doing pretty well as a globally recognized event. You know, based upon where our, our numbers are coming from. I mean, thirty five percent of our field crossed an ocean with two bicycles to get wow. to the race. That's, That's amazing. Um, we've got riders from forty different states each year, uh, and the other third come from Colorado. So. How many As, racers, sorry, real quick, how many racers did you have last year and how, what's the growth been like, attendance growth or participation growth over the last, say, five years? We're going to have about 400 each year and we're going to keep it at that number. Okay. We feel like that's the comfortable carrying capacity of the course 
and and beyond that number it gets a little crowded out there and that's just not the product or experience we want people to send people home with right um, so you know, getting back to your question about how how do we monetize all this work we're putting in i think by increasing the profile of the race we're better able to sell partnership packages um, because people know right, I'm going to have millions of eyes on Breckenridge and my brand can be in the middle of it. Um, and there's a little bit of the, a chicken or the egg philosophy there. I mean, we were trying to sell that this year, but when you're trying to sell it to, you know, the GM of, of an automotive group in Denver, who's not a cyclist, they don't get that. Um, and you can just see that their eyes begin to spiral off and then, you know, thinking about the receptionist up front or, yeah. You know, the mark, the mark walking in the door. Well, uh, when you mentioned the car dealerships, I was going to ask, because you have such a, a broad audience, you know, geographically broad audience, like why would it make sense for a, a local area car dealership to sponsor you when the vast majority of the people are unlikely to ever visit that dealership? I think because the Colorado participants that we do draw, like if they're going to buy, if, for example, a Volvo or an Audi, they're not going to Glenwood to buy that. They're going to Denver to buy that um, because that's where we all go. Um, Colorado's a pretty rustic state. Um, there is, you don't have to sell a lot of automobiles or add to your incremental sales to offset the cost of the packages that we're offering. We also know that, I mean, if I have a choice of two auto dealerships to buy from and I know that one supports cycling, as a cyclist, I'm going to the guys who support the passion that I love. And there's also you know, some nuts and bolts on the print and digital front where you get their brand out in front of a lot of people. Um, and I believe less in those things, but I also know them to be true at some level. You got to do more than put a logo on a jersey. Um, so we're trying to offer VIP and hospitality packages who that are catered towards, like in the case of some of the more premium auto brands, um, towards the high net worth individuals who sort of have a Venn overlay with cycling. Um, it's not uncommon to see, you know, a nice little Quattro wagon rolling down I-70 with two $10,000 bikes on the top or the back. Yeah. But you mentioned the logo on the Jersey thing. So I've got to ask from my own personal curiosity because so with bike rumor, like I've always been very shy about spending money on the thing. People are like, Hey, you know, sponsor our event or whatever. Biker will put your logo on the Jersey. But I mean, to me, I'm like, I never look at the logos on anybody's Jersey. So why would I spend money for that? And, and I appreciate what the people are doing with the events, but do you think that there is any value in that or having a logo on an event t-shirt or Jersey, or does it have to go beyond that for, for the sponsor to gain value? I think that it needs to go beyond that. Um, I don't care about putting a Break Epic logo on anything. I don't care about putting an Uncommon Communications logo on anything. You know, when we produce event t-shirts, we have a handful of people who ask each year, can I get my logo on the t-shirt? And the answer is no, you can't. Because when you put a logo graveyard on a t-shirt, you know, 40 logos in a grid on the back, guess what? That's Billy's new favorite shop rag. <laughs> You know, uh, what you want to do is have the T-shirt sell the event. You want it to be in the varsity stack, you know, the ones that people grab every time a fresh load comes out of the laundry because that sells the event, which in turn brings people into the expo, which gets them to maybe sit inside the new XC90. Um, and 
you have to be self-assured enough to pull back on some of those things. Unfortunately, some people think of, you know, I want my logo on the jersey. We're like, all right. Um, we really try to push back ourselves, and and you know, on, we're adamant on some fronts. You know, there's going to be six back pocket logos. They're going to be all one color, um, and we really try to mute that presence because people need to want to wear the jerseys. Right. Uh, the, the the jerseys and the promotional merchandise have to promote the event. So we're selective about whose logos we put where, um, and until people start, you know sending checks we're gonna hold the line on that <laughs> all right i got one more question about the brick habit because i i want to ask you about some of the other things you're doing now permitting you you know you don't have to close too many roads because if any because it's mostly an off-road event but how hard is it to permanent event marketing event and get from all the different permissions what are the different groups that you have to get approval from to run an event that kind of spreads across what, like maybe a 70 mile radius or so? Um, yeah, that's fair. Um, that's probably pretty accurate. You know, in for the Breck Epic, we have two different forest districts, forest service districts. We have two different counties. Um, we really only, the only municipality that we permit through is, is Breckenridge itself. There's the county. Summit County. Um, sorry, I already mentioned counties. There's a handful of um, housing developments. Uh, you know, so those sort of loosely fall under the owner uh, under the heading of, of landowners. You know, we cross you know 150 parcels of private land. We need permission from all of them. Permitting is onerous. Um, the people who we interact with on the permitting side, uh, we've been lucky. You know. Jumping through the Forest Service bureaucracy is nothing you'd ever do for fun. Like you wouldn't spend, oh, I got an extra hour. I'm going to head on down and fill out a permit application, try to tell someone, you know, why we're not going to crumple any of the penstemon. Um, but the people on the other end of the phone at the Forest Service, at the BLM here in, in Eagle, at the county, uh, and certainly at the town of Breck, have been really good to us. Um, they deal with a lot of bullshit out there from outfitters, you know, doing anything and everything that they can get away with. So you can understand how, at least in the Forest Service and on, on the federal side, they look at all of us with suspicion. It's, um, and so all you can do is try to do the right thing and let your body of work speak for itself. And, and um, we've been fortunate that there are some people on the other end of the line who acknowledge that. So that's a good segue then into some of the work you're doing on the side with Sustainable Trails Coalition. It seems like by being involved in that side of it, it probably makes your job a little bit easier when you're trying to convince these guys that you're not going to tear things up, you're not going to wreck the land. Uh, you'd be surprised. I think that suspicion of mountain biking, you know, there's a, there's a lot of dogma and hyperbole about there out there um some of it generated by the hiking groups that would prefer that that we ride in bike parks only um some of it you know self-inflicted from you know there's always a handful of riders who just salt the well for the rest of us um and we sort of have to fight those battles even though that they weren't created by us um, being involved with an advocacy group whether it's stc or imba or any of the, the local trail groups here 
carries less weight than you think. Hmm. So um, what, do, I, what does carry weight? How do you convince them to let you use a new area? Or... Um, play by the rules. Be honest. Be accountable. Respect what they have to go through. They're busy. So submit complete information. Submit it on time. Pay your bill on time. Uh, and, and respect their time. You know, don't bother them with stupid questions. Be polite. They're the same things that everyone in life responds to. I mean, I mean, the the federal land managers are are the most overtasked, underfunded group that I've ever encountered in my life. Uh, and yet, they still continue to do what I think is really good work. You know, they're, they're not in the Forest Service to get rich. They're there because they believe in, in the backcountry stewardship values that we believe in. So at the end of the day, you have to realize that while we may differ on some of the semantics or finer points about how it should be used, where, when, and why, ultimately we all believe in the same thing. And that's where, you know, hikers and cyclists, well, hikers have chosen to branch off from cyclists in, in, in philosophical logic tree, which is a shame. Um, but B, again, you know, there, there's some pretty simple rules to putting on an event and permitting it and dealing with sponsors. Be decent to people. Try to understand what it's like to walk in their shoes. Be conscientious about the job that you do. Right. And if you suck at something, apologize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so from the Breck Epic, you, in that, which started in 2009, in 2015, you launched the Vale Outlier Off-Road Festival, which... In my understanding, is essentially a giant consumer expo for mountain bike specific brands and products. Yeah, with a fair bit of, of top flight racing as all the aspen leaves are turning. It's a pretty cool experience. It's a lift served consumer demo. Um, it sort of floats around the dates of interbikes, so lots of new products being released. Um, we all remember sort of Allison Dunlap's winning turn. Uh, in Vail just after 9-11. And most of us have seen sort of the spectacle of the GoPro games. Um, we've all been to Sea Otter. Um, there's not that many Sea Otters or, or Crankworks great events out there. And what ones there are are stunningly expensive for uh, the bike industry to participate in. Um, so our goal was to um, sort of steal a little bit of DNA from Sea Otter, uh, from Crankworks, from the GoPro games and, and create something that was cycling centric, um, that was affordable to the industry. Um, and that, you know, created another big cash purse event to, to generate some excitement and then, you know, throw in phone parties. And if all goes well, like mini kiss and Les Zeppelin and, um, um, you know, an ACDC cover band and, and, you know, sweet DJs and, um, there's nothing like that in Colorado on the mountain bike side and not even on the road side uh, the new Primal Festival thing accompanying the Colorado Classic looks promising but it's down in Denver you know we're mountain people yeah so you took what you were doing with the Breck which was the racing and basically added a whole lot more to it a, a giant expo entertainment um, did it need all of that and how big of a team do you have to run that event um there is a team uh, between 12 and 18 paid staff who are, are, are sort of the carnies that follow uh, 
my events around. You know, they, they sort of lead nomadic lifestyles themselves. And again, you know, it's just one of those things where you count your blessings. I'm fortunate to have them in my circle. Uh, and so they come work the event. They know how weird I am and how to work around that. They know how I like t-shirts folded, <laughs> how I like the banners hung. Um, and uh, they quietly get about the business of doing their jobs. And they are good at it. Um, Is it hard to keep those people with such a nomadic lifestyle? Because, you know, they've got to relocate for the event for, you know, a week or more at a time. And then what do they do between events? Do you keep them employed year round? Um, other than people on the PR side, no. Although, you know, the event portfolio is growing. We're probably going to have to bring on, you know, some type of, of event manager with some digital skills pretty soon here. Um they work at bike shops, you know, some of them travel around and support events. A lot of them ride their bikes a lot and wait tables at night. So they, they build their schedules that they tell, you know, the manager of the brewery and Brett, Hey, I need, you know, August 12th through the 18th off and I'm going to be super hungover on the 19th. So give me that one too. <laughs> um, and they're loyal, you know, they would take a bullet for me. Um, we're just, I'm just blessed to have those people. So, you know, and, and, and kind of in mountain communities, people piece together um, different elements of work and income. So it's not such an unnatural fit. And these communities are also like, there's a lot of really high functioning people who sort of opted out of conventional lifestyles. So I get someone, you know, our, our designer, Dave Rossi is, I mean, Dave's the guy that big agencies in San Francisco and New York call when they have a problem client on a global scale. He unibombers out of his his third bedroom at his house in Breck. You know, he's chosen to ride his mountain bike and to ski, and and he's a good friend and he does design work that's just amazing for us. We have relationships like that, you know, up and down the I seventy corridor. Cool, and then so you mentioned a couple of new events coming up so is the it sounds like the event side is a big business that you're or a business that you're planning on making much bigger over the coming year or two well um you know when we first started the breck epic there was um sort of this this really really impolite um wilderness proposal called hidden gems and they wanted to make everything wilderness in the high country and especially in Summit County, they wanted to take away 75% of the trails. And the Break Epic at the time had, had cultivated a pretty loyal following. Um, and the newsletters were being well-received. And the media were paying attention. And it was sort of the wild, wild west of, of social media. So we realized that we had the ability to, to shape public perception. And maybe not, not so much do that as much as in this case, call bullshit on those people that the sort of maxims that they were pushing at the elected officials about how cyclists ruin the terrain and, you know, wilderness designation would enhance the local economy. Those things just weren't true when taken out of context. And so we used our big mouth to call attention to that, um, which sort of translates into where we are right now. Um, well, going back to the Breck Epic, we have all these amazing riders coming and the media are following them and we're in a climate right now where they're talking about abolishing the EPA. They're talking about selling off public lands. So we have uh, these lenses 
through which to both project our messaging to the outside world and for them to take a close look at what we're doing. So we looked at Epic and, and, and the media who are attending and said, you know, what higher purpose can we serve while we're here? And so we're creating an event called the Adventure Summit. And it, it basically rests on four pillars. It's a week-long summit that takes place during the same time as the Breck Epic. Uh, the Breck, town of Breck is giving us um, all the venues in sort of the restored historic arts district downtown. So film premieres, panel discussions. We have studio space for leaders in the conservation movement to meet and, and share pizza or a pitcher of beer with each other. Those are important things. Um, so we'll do a consumer demo along with that event, and we will talk about the economic impact of events like this, of outdoor recreation, why these things are important, you know, how it disappears into the engine of Colorado, the economic engine. We'll talk about stewardship and how to not use what we love to death, you know, the responsibilities that are attendant to being a user of the backcountry. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll sort of have, we'll obviously have an athlete pillar. You know, if, if Katie Compton's in town, <clears throat> I want people to meet Katie Compton. She's rad. Um, and so we could talk about issues that, that face cyclists and, and pro cyclists. Um, and we can introduce, you know, a lot of regional local riders to their heroes. So we're talking about economic impact. We're talking about conservation. We're talking about the need to fight to preserve these places. Um, no matter what we like to do with them, whether that's enjoy them from horseback, from the top of a, a, a you know, a, a two-stroke, 250, um, or on hiking boots or, or a bike. Um, How much of the, your work in that, because you've you got a lot going on, and I would assume this takes a good bit of time as well and energy. So how much of your work with this is... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, altruistic because you love the outdoors and you think it's the right thing to do versus maintaining an environment where you can put on these events. I think we're in good shape on the permitting side. We don't have to do the adventure summit. It just seems like the right thing to do. Um, it seems like we have the ability to do something bigger than just put on a bike race. And, and it's almost like it's our responsibility to do that. I don't think it's, it's, I've never considered what sort of favor it earns us with anybody. Doesn't matter. You're a good guy, Mike. I like no, that about you. I'm not. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I'm a deeply flawed human being. Uh, <laughs> however, I care about these things. I've worked to protect the backcountry for a long time. And finally, we have this sort of soundstage to bray you know, long and loud from. And it's important that people hear the message. Stop throwing your shit on the ground out there. You know, pack it in, pack it out. Leave no trace. These things are important. Be nice to other people. That's a great message. Do you think at any level, we might ever get to the point where you run the risk of alienating some folks from your events or your business model by, not that you come across as preachy in any way, but by using these as a platform for an environmental message? Maybe. Um, there was definitely yeah. <laughs> a guy who liked to be told not to litter because he wasn't littering. Um, and he took being reminded about that last year very personally. Um, but he, maybe he was having a bad day or a bad week. Um, we, you know, we're going to talk about race stuff at the race and we're going to talk about environmental stuff at the conference. 
And we are going to stress the importance of non-impactful recreational events to our economy and, and hopefully you know, make maybe the permitting process a little bit easier. You know, hopefully drum up some resources for the Forest Service. Um, because these things matter in Colorado. It's not all about skiing. You know, there's there's three other seasons. So I, I don't know, Todd. You know, I've never thought about it that way, who we might alienate by being preachy. I guess, you know, we try not to be preachy. I preach about litter um, at the, the nightly meetings, and that's an ongoing challenge. You know, people come from different cultures, different areas of the world, and the rules are different. Um, and I have very little tolerance for trash on course that, that that clearly has been deliberately dropped like and you know we have a problem with that the first day and then i'm kind of a super poop about it and uh, and then it goes away people like get with the program well i think it, it you run the risk of losing the ability to get permits if you bring in people that are constantly trashing it too so you you, you know you've got to rein that in we do. We hedge our bets there also. Like when we pull the course every day, we pick up everything. We pick up everything that's ours, everything that's not ours. And like when I look through those bags, um, what what the course sweepers have pulled in, most of it's not ours. Yeah. People are going to drop stuff. We're going to pick it up. But so so we're, we're covering ourselves there. And we're probably we're trying to do a good job of, of scouring the courses clean of anything else that's out there. So we're trying to walk the walk. Um, asking people to meet us halfway. All right, we're going to switch to the, the last thing that you're doing that I know of. And so on top of events, on top of the stewardship for the area, you also have a PR company called Uncommon Communications that you launched in 2012. And I've got to ask, why did you do that to yourself? Because did you really need more on your plate? Um, in 2012... You know, the epic was it was just beginning to mature, and that was still a touch and go thing. Um, <clears throat> and so, it really was uh, just trying to diversify a little bit. Um, at Backbone, I, I had been pulled further and further afield from working on accounts that I liked, um, and you know, my personal life went into just complete chaos, and. All of us were unhappy, and uh, it just became a decision of what are we doing here? And and um, so I pulled away and decided that I was I was capable of performing good PR, and that I just wanted to do it in the bike industry. And realizing that that wasn't a very well paid position, but it was an area in which I was passionate and fluent, and um, I think incredible. So. I did, and I also saw it as, as as a nice compliment to the event side. You, know, you want to talk to media. You want to have good relationships with them, and then, then both sides benefit each other. We do altruistic work. We produce events, and we have a public relations company, and there's there's overlap between all of those circles, enough so that, that each is made better by the others. Right. So with the PR brand company, you've got a couple of good brands under your belt, you know, Ergon or Lieb, which, you know, for anybody outside of the cycling or adventure kind of outdoor lifestyle that doesn't know them, they're both well-known brands, fairly decent sized players. Uh, how did you get those brands? And, you know, what do you do for client acquisition and retainment? Um, how do we get them? Well, in the case of Jeffrey Neal, I bugged him 
<laughs> until he until he said yes. Which is Ergon. Uh, which is Ergon, right? Uh, he was going to Interbike, and I I've been talking to him a little bit, and you know, I didn't know him that well, and he didn't know me, and uh, he was going to Interbike, and I was like, Jeffrey, you're going to the single largest media event of your entire season, and you're not taking a PR person. It's like, let me work for you for three months. And if you like the work, then stay on board. And if you don't like the work, at least you've had 30 or 40 media appointments and we brought some people to the booth. And so I went to Interbike with him that year. And yeah, we booked 30 or 40 appointments and he'd never seen media like that in his booth. And they, they generated a lot of traction for the brand. Um, and then, you know, over the course of him being close quarters with us, he realized that we were actually pretty decent people. Um, and so they, they've been a client an account for four years. They're amazing. They're just, they're nice people. So, I mean, the, uh, we have a little bit of, of outbound um, cultivation of prospects, but not much. Most people come to us. We don't even have a website. You know, we're busy. Um, Logan keeps bugging me about the website, and, and <laughs> one of these days we'll, we'll get it launched. Um, but, we generally take on people and brands who resonate with us that we, we feel good about talking about. It's just too hard to, to promote something that you don't like. So we do have Ergon. We have Orlieb, which is amazing. Uh, we have Burn Helmets, um, Alchemy Bicycles, Praxis Works, which is you know so easy to get behind. Their stuff is yeah, it's, they <clears throat> they believe some of the same things that we do. You know, high performance shouldn't kill your ability to pay your mortgage. Um, we are really really lucky. We have you know prickly pedal. We do a little bit of a event promotion or event PR as well. How do you so manage nice. your time between <clears throat> all these different ventures? Um, I rely on a lot of my people to tell me what they need from me on any given day. Um, Try to keep the long game uh, top of mind. You know what we're trying to do three months from now, six months from now, um, and then you know more and more, just letting people do their jobs, giving them good direction, good resources, um, having honest talks with them when you know things don't always go well. Um, but but hiring people who can deal with those conversations and, and realize that you know we're all friends at the end of the day. Right on. All right, well, this has been a long one, and I know you're busy. It's a couple last wrap-ups. What piece of advice would you give to somebody who is looking to put on some sort of an event or mimic your business model in any way? That's a great question, Tyler. Um, like it comes back to being passionate being organized, being reasonable, um, and have an idea and, and trust your passion. It sounds really trite, you know, follow your heart, chase your dreams. Um, I, I really don't believe in, in kind of that John Teshi stuff. Um, but like with the Epic, I thought that we could do something amazing and I've never not believed that that it wasn't wonderful, that it wasn't doing more work, than wasn't performing more than, as more than just a bike race. Uh, so yeah, aim high, you know, follow your passion, trust your dreams. <laughs> Those things are important. 
and you know when you believe that something is amazing i think that creates an environment in which other people believe that too all right where can people find you online or where do you want them to find you well, you're not going to find me at uncommoncommunications.com because that's got a big site under construction tag on it, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is no fault of Logan's or Dave Rossi's. That one comes to me. Um, but you, they can always get me at uh, Mike Mack at breakepic.com. Thanks a ton for your time, man. I'm always excited to see you and talk to you at the shows. So. Oh, yeah. We always talk for 15 minutes. It's just nice. Thank you, Todd. All right. Thank you. See ya. How was that? Mike's such a great guy, and the breadth of his impact on Colorado's mountain biking scene can't be overestimated. From an event management standpoint, he dropped a ton of advice here. I've recapped the key points in the show notes at thebuildcycle.com, so definitely go check it out there. But a couple of quick thoughts. Create an experience that blows people away. This starts before they ever sign up. Draw them in, let them know you've got this covered. Answer any questions they have before they even think to ask. Assure them that they'll get their money's worth and then give them more. This creates true fans that will come back year after year and bring their friends. I could go on, make it easy for people to say yes, build consensus, empathize, consider the other impacts of the event. Want more? Check out the show notes, there's a lot there. Plus photos, links, and more. Thanks for tuning in. Hit me up on social media if you know someone I should interview, got a question, or just want to say hey. We're at The Build Cycle on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're digging this podcast, could you tell a friend? Maybe you know someone who wants to start their own company or an entrepreneur that's looking to grow. Tell them to check out The Build Cycle podcast on iTunes or Stitcher, and they will owe you big time. See you guys next episode.